Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Matt Chancy, and today's another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. Um, today, we brought on an attorney, because I know everybody likes hearing about fun and legal stuff. So uh, our attorney today is Greg Herman Giddens, and he is with Galbraith Law PLLC. They have offices in Naples, Indianapolis, and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And his focus or concentration is wills, trusts, and estates. So Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Um, Pleasure to meet you. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Absolutely. I know we've all got busy schedules, so I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. So so back in the day when you went to law school, you know, I always like to start way at the beginning. You know, when you grew up, did you know you were going to be an estate, wills, and trusts attorney? I did not at all. I, um, you know, as a kid, I started off wanting to be a fireman. And then by the time I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. And when at college, I decided maybe to study psychology, thinking I might be a a clinical psychologist. And so believe it or not, I didn't even think about going to law school until I was a junior in college. And my advisor said, hey, your grades are really good. You know, you could go to med school, go to law school. And I thought, well, I don't like blood, so I'm not going to med school. (laughs) (laughs) But literally, that was the first time I'd ever even thought about going to law school. And then I thought, you know, that might be, uh, you know, have a few more options than becoming a clinical psychologist. You know, a lot of things you can do with a law degree. So that's sort of how it all, all started. There you go. Well, good on the counselor for identifying talent and saying there might be a better path for you, right? <laughs> yeah, and I'm very glad he did now because um, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. I've, I think I've found the best area of law for me. Every day I learn new things. I learn how to better serve my clients. Um, rarely boring. So it's, it's great. Just love it. Awesome. Well, since you opened the, you know, Pandora's box on that a little bit, you found the right area of law, you know, let's talk about that. How did you find the right area of law? Because there's a million different disciplines, well, probably not a million, that's a tad of an embellishment, but a lot of different ways you could have applied, you know, having the legal skill set and you tr- chose wills, trusts and estates. So how did you get there? That was uh, really based on a course I had in law school on trusts and estates. And I I enjoyed it. I did really well, which helped. (laughs) I made an A and the uh, professor asked if I would be his research assistant. And for better or worse, I turned him down because by that time I already had a job where I was getting paid. And I think 
the research assistant, I don't even remember, it may not have been a paid position, just you know, for the glory of it. But when I got out of law school, I didn't start out doing trust and estates. I did um, mostly family law, divorce and child custody, um, along with a smattering of other things. But I'm glad for that background. I did some juvenile court work, bankruptcy, a little bit of wills and estates, even a few traffic tickets. And so that led me to know what I did not want to do for the rest of my career. (laughs) (laughs) You know, certainly you can make good money in a lot of those areas of the law, but they just didn't interest me. And I really wasn't, um, while I liked all the stories that went along in family law about the divorcing spouses and all that, and I liked talking to the other attorneys in the courthouse, I didn't like the fact that it was so adversarial and there was a lot of um, gamesmanship between the attorneys. And I didn't appreciate that. And I knew that wasn't a long-term career path for me. So after a couple of years of that, I thought, well, how do I go back to what I really think I want to do? And that's the trust in the States based on that class I had in law school. Um, And of course, this was before the internet and online programs and all that. So in a magazine, I found an ad for the University of Miami's Master of Laws program in estate planning. So a one-year full-time program for lawyers who've already got their JD who want to specialize in estate planning. I said, oh, this sounds perfect for me because, you know, I want to specialize. You know, it seems like a good way to get that background. So I applied and uh, went down to Miami and did the program. That was, I finished up in 93. Okay, there you go. So trust me, I I was going to bring that up when you were talking about it, about the adversarial nature of, you know, family law and some of the stuff you're doing. I I can't, I can't imagine that that was, would be fun to have to, and fight. And and then you brought up the gamesmanship of the attorneys in the situation to, yeah, that, you know, I, that doesn't sound appealing, but, you know, would I be wrong by saying that, you know, going through the estate planning process and the way that families work, that it is one of the, that process can certainly turn an in-law into an outlaw rather quickly? Yes. And it's not as much the planning process as the post-mortem administration where the, the family members start bickering and there tend to be problems um, Often, but between siblings, that's not uncommon at all. Sometimes you get fights between, you know, parents and children and um, other relatives. But the brother-sister thing is is the most common. So I do still get involved with adversarial situations some, but typically it's not in a litigation format. It's just, you know, they're bickering back and forth. And, um, you know, I'm representing maybe one of them and another attorney is representing the other one. Typically, if there is a lawsuit filed, um, I will not be the primary attorney for the litigant, one of the litigants. I will um, you know, either advise in the background or just turn it over to somebody because I don't, I really don't want to be involved in the, the pure litigation. Sure. Sure. And I agree with that. You know, the siblings turn against each other quick in an estate administration type deal. I've literally seen a case where a son 
I mean, in his 60s, but uh, a son or a brother went and stole mom out of a nursing home physically and to put him in his house. So he felt like he would have more control over the money. And you're laughing and smiling for the people that can't see this. So I know you've got stories like that, too. Oh, yeah. I've seen that that same scenario a few times. You know, sometimes it even involves taking the parent out of state to, you know, the child lives in another state. They'll come up, get the mom, put her in the car and drive her you know, back to Ohio or wherever. So. Yeah. That rarely works out very well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And unfortunately, um, you know, besides just the bad blood between the siblings, I mean, it, these things can get terribly expensive. Yeah. So how yeah. Large are they? <laughs> They're very expensive. So with that being said, right, talking about a state administration and family can get complicated. Let's back up a little bit and let's talk about why planning, you know, wills, trusts and estates and doing the planning prior to ever getting to that becomes more important to eliminate, you know, or reduce the the occurrence of that estate administration issue. Right. So that's what you do today. So let's talk about it. What is estate planning from a high level? Remember, we want to talk to our audience in a way that they don't understand what we're talking about. So what's estate planning from a high level and when should someone start to engage in it? Well, estate planning is involves a couple of different aspects. One is planning for while you're alive, but may become incapacitated. But the way most people think of it is planning for what happens to your property after your death. Um, but it really involves both. And for some people, it's actually the planning for what happens during the incapacity is even more important than what happens after death, particularly young people um, who may not own a lot, uh, may not be married or have young children or anything like that. But it's really estate planning involves setting up your affairs in a way that you'll be able to make sure, at least to the extent possible, your wishes are carried out if you're no longer able to make decisions for yourself or conduct business for yourself, and also to make sure that your assets are distributed at your death in a way that you wanted them to be, and you've saved taxes if that's an issue, and you protected vulnerable family members. Now, all those things, you know, I, I do both planning and the post-mortem administration, trust administration, and uh, estate administration. So when I urge people to do planning, I'm really making my job a lot easier on the post-mortem side, because the better they've set up their estate plan, the less there is to do after they die. And so um, while, when I urge somebody to set up a revocable living trust, I'm going to get paid a lot less for helping the family after they die. But that's fine because, you know, my goal is to make things as simple and easy for the family as, as possible. So, and, it, and of course, the bees all work out in the end. So I'm not particularly concerned about, <laughs> you know, working myself out of some, some extra probate fees down the road. Well, there's an old, you know, I mean, you see, or there has been a business model that's existed for a state for, I guess, let's not call them a state, let's say wills and trust attorneys, right? Where they would do a whole bunch of wills and trusts and stuff and fill up their file cabinet with hundreds or thousands of those. And then basically wait on the paydays from all the trust, from all the estate administration stuff. That's a, that's a real business model, right? <laughs> yeah. We call that when the estate plan matures. 
when the estate uh, plan matures. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I hate to think that some attorneys would purposely, you know, just do a will rather than setting up an estate to avoid probate because they'll get paid more through probate than they would through trust administration. But there may be, you know, those attorneys out there. I know that I'm a big proponent of using revocable living trusts in planning to avoid uh, probate. And, you know, just briefly avoiding probate means keeping things private, avoiding court fees, avoiding a lot of hassle, avoiding additional attorney's fees. But some attorneys, for whatever reason, they just, they don't like living trusts. They say, oh, you'll be fine with the will. And I really don't agree with that. Um, I try to avoid probate at all costs. And I think a lot of um, lay people get confused. They think if you have a will, you avoid probate. But that's not true. What a will, a will actually is designed for probate assets. Your will won't control anything that's not a probate asset. So like a life insurance policy that's payable to your spouse, that's not a probate asset. Your will won't control it. But probably every week or so I have a client say, well, I have a will. Doesn't that avoid probate? And that's that's not true at all. Well, I kind of tell people that, I mean, and what you're saying is congruent with this, a will actually creates probate in a way, right? It's the document on which mom and dad said, when I'm not here anymore, I want the attorney to come in and play referee between my family and split my stuff up. And that's the document on which you would split the stuff up, right? Yeah. And and the will places everything under the supervision of the court system. So in some states are worse than others. Like North Carolina requires mandatory accountings. So you have to report every penny going into the estate and every penny going out of the estate. Florida does not, for example. But nonetheless, you know, I think um, you're best to avoid probate if you can. You know, for no other reason, just um, because at least some of the information is going to be public record. So somebody could go into the court file and see who gets what and how much you had and things like that. That is um, less true in Florida than it is in North Carolina. Right now, the, the North Carolina records are essentially all open to the public. Wow. Interesting. How different. And that would be, that seems counterintuitive that North Carolina would leave all of their information open to the public, but yet require a higher standard of accounting of those assets as they become, that almost seems backwards to me for some reason. Well, yeah, I mean, don't get me started in North Carolina. They do not have electronic filing yet. So everything has to be filed in paper. You know, you generally can't look up anything online. But North Carolina also charges up to $6,000 in court fees, depending on the value of the assets in probate, um, which is another big reason to avoid probate, at least in North Carolina. Sure. California is another state where the probate tends to be very expensive. Um, there's lots of court fees and, and all the attorneys in California charge a lot of money. So I can't imagine that. I can't imagine California charging a lot of money for something that just doesn't seem real. <laughs> Understood. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about, you mentioned you're a big fan of, you know, of of living trust, of a revocable living trust. For a lay person, let's talk about it. What is a revocable living trust and why would we use that tool? This is a document that you set up during your lifetime. It starts being effective while you're alive. That's what's called a living trust. And it's termed revocable because you would retain the power to revoke and amend it. 
So you're not, it's not like an irrevocable trust where you're locked in once you sign it. So the, as I said before, the purpose is to avoid probate, but another purpose is for the management of your assets should you become incapacitated. So whether you have a single person with one trust or a married couple, who each have their own trust, or maybe a married couple has a joint trust, you can do it in a number of different ways. The idea is that they'll place most of their assets in that trust while they're still alive. And they would serve as trustees, so they have the power to manage the assets. They can do whatever they want, take money out whenever they want, change the trust. Um, Nobody's telling them what they can or cannot do. But if they become incapacitated, a successor trustee who's already named in the document can take over, whether that's a spouse or an adult child or someone else. That person just steps into the shoes. So in my case, with my trust, if I'm incapacitated, uh, my wife would just take over. And so it's fairly seamless. She just would provide a document to the institution where I'm holding money and, and assets saying I'm now the trustee. That works better than providing powers of attorney, generally speaking. So that's the advantage of a living trust during incapacity, but more so, therefore, avoiding that whole probate process. So when you die and you have your assets in a living trust, those will not go through probate um, because they're not considered to be individually owned by you at the time of your death. It's sort of like having um, assets in a company. You own the company and the company owns the assets. In this case, you own the trust and the trust owns the assets. So the terms of the trust control what happens to them and there's no court supervision. So the trustee doesn't have to go to court to get authority to act, doesn't have to file um, you know, any inventories with the court. And so it can save a lot of time and money and keep everything private. Okay. So I want to go back and I want to talk about something you said. You said putting the assets in the trust. So putting the assets in the trust for the people that are going to listen to this, that are unfamiliar with that concept, it literally means retitling the assets. So if I have an account at a bank that's my name on the bank, I'm, it can't be my name on the bank anymore. It's got to be my revocable living trust at the bank is the owner of the account. And then there would be a successor trustee. So I think a common misconception in this space is just having the trust solves the problem, right? That's exactly right. Um, so in your case, Matt, if you have a living trust, you would go to the bank and you'd say, here's my trust. I want to change this to Matt Chancy, the uh, trustee of the Matt Chancy living trust. And the bank would prepare a form, you'd sign it, and that would accomplish the transfer to the trust. If you wanted to put your house in the trust, a lawyer would prepare a deed transferring it to the trust, and that would be recorded in the, the county records. Certain other things like company interests in, say, a limited liability company could be assigned to the trust. Um, if you if somebody owes you money, you could assign that promissory note to the trust. So there are ways to put virtually all types of assets in the trust, there are a few exceptions. You cannot transfer a retirement account to a trust while you're alive. You can make the trust as beneficiary, which um, there's a whole other set of issues involved with that just because of the, the tax rules. 
But along the lines of what you were saying, you know, just creating the trust that's not funded. And another thing to be careful of is a lot of trusts have what's called a Schedule A on the back, this list of trust assets. I do not typically fill that out, at least before the assets are placed in the name of the trust, because clients tend to look at that and say, oh, you know, my house is on here, my bank account is on here, my investment account is on here. That means they're all in the trust. That means nothing. Schedule A means, you know, doesn't mean those assets are owned by the trust. So I tend to just say $10. And the proof of what's in the trust is the way all the assets are titled. Those are the things that should be in the trust. That, yes, but um, that would be a better use of a form like that to say these assets go to the trust. But typically what I do with my clients is if they're a new client, I will prepare a spreadsheet of all their assets with recommendations of how they should be titled either in the trust, if they should stay in individual names, or if there's beneficiaries, who should be the beneficiaries. And that is a very crucial part of planning that gets ignored many times, especially if there's an attorney who doesn't really specialize in estate planning or you, you know, get your trust on LegalZoom or something like that. I mean, the, those types of important follow-up steps often are ignored. Yeah, the legal document in and of itself without it being funded properly is basically as worthless as the paper it's printed on, right? Yes. Now, when somebody has a living trust, they also should have what we call a pour over will. And that's to catch anything that was not put in the trust during lifetime. So, you know, in my case, if I have a living trust and I have a bank account that's in my name and I never put it in the name of the trust for some reason I die, my pour over will will catch it and it'll direct that it be put into the trust. So at least it'll go along with all the other assets, but it has to go through probate first because basically that's what a will is about is, is probate, directing where those probate assets go. So the goal is, you know, never having to use that pour over will, but we would always have one just in case. Gotcha. So, so the asset that wasn't in the trust that should have been in the trust goes through the state administration process of probate. And then once that asset is probated, basically the beneficiary of that asset now becomes the trust in the first place, which is where it should have been titled to, to some extent. Yes. And that sort of reminds me of something that will, a lot of people aren't aware of or don't really think about. And that is if somebody has a condo or a piece of real property, or is particularly a problem with timeshares, which are considered real property in another state, and they don't, they have a trust and don't put that into their trust, that's going to trigger a probate in that other state. So in Florida is notorious for timeshare ownership. <laughs> so all the time we're getting people from other states saying, my parents died and they had two or three timeshares and we don't want them or they're only worth $2,000 a piece. And I say, well, it'll cost you more than $2,000 to do probate in Florida. So timeshares that aren't really uh, thought about in terms of the planning process can be a problem. And, Interesting. Uh, but same goes for any sort of out-of-state real estate ownership. Sure. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. What about a life insurance policy? Should that be owned by a trust? 
the ownership is not quite as important as the beneficiary. So if you have the trust as the beneficiary, those proceeds will go straight into the trust and they won't go through probate. Um, the ownership can be transferred to the trust, but it doesn't have to be. Where the ownership of life insurance becomes a very important issue is that for people with larger estates, you know, life insurance, while it is not subject to income tax, is part of somebody's estate for estate tax purposes. And the current estate tax exemption, you know, is about $12 million per person. So not many people are affected. But, um, you know, if somebody is worth $12 million and they have a $3 million life insurance policy, that all of a sudden is going to bump their taxable estate uh, up to $15 million, meaning they're going to, the, the beneficiaries are going to have to pay taxes on that extra $3 million. But if they create an irrevocable trust before they die and transfer ownership of the life insurance policy to the irrevocable trust, that can avoid estate tax on the life insurance policy, but the, the trust has to own it. It's not just be the beneficiary, but it has to actually own that policy. So that's getting into a fairly complex area of planning. Um, but the key is to remember that life insurance is subject to estate taxes and putting it in a revocable trust will not do anything to save estate taxes. It has to be irrevocable. Trust that can't be changed. Makes sense. Okay. So trust revocable can be changed. Irrevocable cannot be changed. All right. Fair enough. So if you move an asset, retitle it into a revocable trust, is that a taxable event? And then the same question, if you move an asset into an irrevocable trust, is that a taxable event? It is not a taxable event to move an asset into a revocable trust because the IRS disregards revocable trust for tax purposes. So they, they basically consider it invisible. That means any income you generate on assets owned by your revocable trust is just taxed on your 1040. So you can move assets in and out, no change in anything. With an irrevocable trust, it depends. The lawyer's favorite phrase, it depends. <laughs> but... Generally speaking, it is a taxable event. It would be um, considered a gift to the, the beneficiaries of the trust. And there's ways that we can help get around that. And there are exceptions, um, which are probably, you know, that's probably too much detail to go into today. But yeah, you do have to consider the tax consequences when um, transferring an asset to an irrevocable trust. Like if you were to transfer a life insurance policy with a cash value of $300,000 to an irrevocable life insurance trust, that's essentially a gift of $300,000 that would have to be reported. You have to file a gift tax return. You do. And it would use up part of your lifetime exemption. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. No, that's good. And I ask those questions that way because if somebody listens, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think some people might sit down in these meetings, but they don't necessarily know what questions they would ask per se if they were if they were in that scenario. You know, I think I saw an email earlier today that talked about um, the estate tax exemption ultimately going up, getting pushed up. I guess I think it, it's getting indexed or whatever. So 
they was, which is something I don't know why they haven't always done. All these, you know, uh, limitations on qualified plan contributions or state tax calculations. I don't understand why all that stuff wouldn't have been indexed from the day that it was ultimately created. I guess maybe that would have been too easy. <laughs> yes, I mean, so each year, you know, the the estate tax exemption is going up. Um, I, I think they usually at in December, they announce what it's going to be for the following year. Um, the gift tax annual exclusion, which started out many years ago at $10,000, used to not be graduated either. Now it's $16,000, and that's the amount each person can give any other person in a year and not have to report it for gift tax purposes. It's built into the law now that in 2026, the gift and estate tax exemption whatever it happens to be at that point in time uh, with, you know, being indexed for inflation is going to be drop in half essentially. So I've seen some figures estimate the exemption, if that actually comes to pass in 2026, might be about $8 million per person. So, so yeah, so, so if it, cause today it's around 12 per person, right? So 24 for a married couple, let's assume that, you know, indexes for the next four years, and then it gets cut in half, then you're saying it's going to go. So we're, we're projecting it would maybe be 16 million per person in 2026. And then it gets chopped in half back down to 8 million per person. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, roughly speaking. Now, I personally don't think that's going to happen. I think in probably the way Congress works in December of 2025, they're going to put some fix in to continue the current exemption. But who knows? I mean, that's just sort of the way I I feel it's going to work out. But. Sure. But I mean, let's be practical about this, right? $23, million, $23, $24 million, what it is right now today. What percentage of the population is that? Less than 1%. Right. So statistically, it's less than 1% of your clients that are coming in to have that conversation. And the 99% are coming in to have the conversation about, you know, the the blocking and tackling, right? The wills and the revocable trusts and avoiding the probate process and remaining private and, you know, setting up their beneficiary designations correctly on their, their trusts and their, you know, retirement accounts and their life insurance policies and stuff. Just the, the fundamentals of the game, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, my clients tend to be skewed more to the upper levels, but even so, probably only about maybe 30 maximum have taxable estates. So the the vast majority of my clients, while they're well-to-do by most standards, don't have to worry about estate taxes. I mean, even a married couple who has right now $20 million this point, they might have, might have to worry about it in 2026, but not right now. So sure, potentially an estate tax. Right. How nervous does that make a client when they're like, "Today, I'm kind of exempt. I'm underneath the limit, but I could get, I could get moved into it based on how it changes." Like, are people re- really nervous, and are are they nervous enough to take action on that? People are thinking about it. Um, I have a couple now who's been thinking about it for over a year <laughs> and we, we keep talking about it. I think they don't yet feel a sense of urgency because we're looking at 2026 um, and, you know, we still have a few years, but I, I guarantee you by, um, you know, maybe the end of 2024, if the law hasn't changed, people are going to start 
becoming more serious about it. And really the way to, to plan for couples who can afford it is to give away more than um, what they think the new exemption is going to be because if they give away less, they really haven't accomplished anything because you know, if you give away $8 million in 2025 and then in 2026, the new exemption is $8 million, you've just already used up all of your exemption. You haven't really gained. If you give away $10 million in 2025 and the new exemption is $8 million, you've got an extra $2 million that you were able to get out of your estate. Um, so a lot of people don't even think about that. They think, well, I can just give a couple million away and I'm going to save. That's not the way it works. That's a good nugget right there. And with yeah. it being $12 million today and potentially cut in half, if it indexes to 13 or 14 million in the next couple of years, theoretically give away the 14 million and correct me if I'm wrong, but giving away could mean giving it to an irrevocable trust because that's giving it away, right? Give away the 14 million, get it out of your estate using the laws. Now the estate issue drops to 8 million and then you still got those other dollars in your estate, but you know, now you've got this other money in an irrevocable trust out there. So yes. And for married couples, there's a great way to do that that doesn't involve getting them. What the way I like to phrase it is, you're not taking the money out of the marital unit. So then that's the use of these spousal lifetime access trusts or SLATs. You have to be okay. careful how you say that. <laughs> <laughs> you meant very different than SALT, right? Which is state yeah. and local taxes. That's, that's actually a, another thing that I could talk about. Um, I have a clever planning technique that's not mine, but but if we have time, we can talk about that. But the slats are great too. Um, and they're not for everybody. You have to be worth probably, you know, if it's a married company, you probably have to be worth about $30 million for that to make sense. You know, and of course, that's, that's not all that many people. But um, the, what that involves is you can set up, each spouse can set up a trust for the other spouse. And then they can fund it with, you know, what would need to be more than whatever the new exemption is going to be in 2026. So say 10 million, 12 million. And so the husband can, can put 10 million in for the wife and the wife can put 10 million in for the husband. They're each beneficiaries of the other's trust. So the money is still available for the two of them, but it's not considered owned by them. So when they die, those assets are not subject to estate tax. Well, many trusts, so I'm going to assume, and I'm reading between the lines and guessing, I don't know a ton about this a little bit. So many trusts have what are called a HEMS provision, health, education, maintenance, and support. And so I would assume that if I'm, if I'm the husband and I use my $12 million exemption and I give that money to my wife's trust, that's not my assets and it's also not her assets. But if she has the access of the income that comes from that $12 million for health, education, maintenance, and support, then the income from that could be pretty substantial. And that wouldn't be a bad thing, right? Yes. So, I mean, these trusts have to be very carefully drafted and they can't be too alike or it will trigger something called the reciprocal trust doctrine that the IRS would disregard the trust and pull all the money back into the estate. So you really have to have a you know, an experienced attorney prepare these, but this each, like 
if I set up a trust for my wife of one of these slats, she can be trustee. So she can decide, or she can decide how to invest them, or I could even still decide how to invest them. And she can take income out and principal out, but it has to be, as you said, for the HEMS, health, education, maintenance, and support. Um, and the kids can be included too. And if you have a third party trustee, it doesn't even have to be HEMS. It can be purely discretionary. Okay. So I'm a trustee right now of a couple of these um, slats where the clients didn't want to be limited to the HEMS. They wanted to have a more potentially liberal discretionary standard or really no standard at all. It's just purely discretionary. And so I'm named as a distribution trustee. So if I can potentially make a distribution that doesn't have to be for health or support. Can corpus be distributed or only yes. appreciation gains or income? Yeah, the corpus can be distributed. I mean, it's better not to unless you really need it because you're taking money from what is estate tax-free. And like, it would never make any sense to take out a half a million dollars to buy a piece of real estate because you're taking sure. it from estate tax-free money and putting it in the taxable Put it back in, yeah. But, you know, if somebody needed to buy a new car or, you know, they needed $5,000 a month to help for, you know, care or something, but, you know, all that's fine. Your principal can come out. Interesting. Very interesting. And I assume when you mean that the trust have to have distributions for different purposes and not set up for identical, like they mirror one another, I would have to assume that if her distributions were for shoes and purses and his were for fishing and golf, that's not enough material of difference. That's, it, that's exactly right. So, you know, some ways we make those trusts different or we have different beneficiaries. So maybe, you know, one includes the children and the other includes the children and the grandchildren. And maybe one has a right of certain beneficiaries to withdraw without triggering tax problems. They can withdraw up to $5,000 or $5,000 or 5% per year. So maybe they have that withdrawal right. Or there's um, different contingent beneficiaries if, you know, the immediate family members die and um, things like that. So there, there are ways to make it different. Another way to help make it different is to have the trust sign um, far apart in time. So, you know, maybe one client would sign theirs in 2022 and the next would wait till 2023. Gotcha. Which commonly when somebody implements an estate planning technique, they go in the husband and wife and they do all matching stuff kind of at the same time. So that staggering it over time is, is atypical from an from a planning standpoint when yes. somebody does this. Okay. Interesting. Never heard of that. That is new. Like that. Very cool. Yeah. Hadn't heard of some of that stuff. I know a little bit about it, but you know, enough to be dangerous isn't what I do all day, but I'm trying to interpret this stuff and have conversations with clients about it. So let's go back to the thing you said before, because now I'm super curious because SLAT, Spousal Lifetime Access Trust, and SALT is state and local taxes. So tell me the trick that you got on the state and, lo state and local taxes. Well, this is only for certain people, but you know, it's Probably most listeners know there's a $10,000 cap on the federal returns for deducting state and local taxes, which includes income taxes and property taxes. 
So for a lot of wealthy people that, you know, that doesn't start to cover all the property taxes and um, income taxes they pay. Now in Florida, we're lucky we don't have any income taxes, but you know, a lot of people, their property taxes alone would exceed $10,000. So they're kind of out of luck. But if, if you have somebody who owns a S corporation, which is a certain type of pass-through entity, it's basically a state law corporation that has made an election with the IRS to be treated as an, an S corp. So it doesn't pay any taxes um, on a federal level, but it's, it's often treated differently for um, state purposes, or they are, say, um, a partner in a partnership or um, an LLC. They're a member of an LLC that has multiple members. LLCs are by default when there's a multi-member taxes partnership. So the way I can give you my, my personal example is I have a business in North Carolina that has an income tax, even though I'm a Florida resident. And so every year, this generates some income. And it's a North Carolina corporation. So North Carolina says, you know, you, you have to pay tax on this money. And it's a pass-through entity. So what I could do is just um, report that North Carolina income on a North Carolina return that I would be forced to file personally. But I wouldn't get to deduct it because, you know, my property taxes on my various properties are already in excess of $10,000. So I've, I've already reached the cap for my property taxes. So I wouldn't get a further deduction for my North Carolina income taxes. But North Carolina allows you to make an election to pay those state income taxes at the entity level. So rather than me reporting that um, North Carolina income on my federal return and then having to file a North Carolina return to report it for North Carolina purposes and not being able to deduct it. What I do is I take it as a deduction on the, um, the return. And so the corporation pays the state income taxes and they're deductible for federal income tax purposes that way because they're to the corporation. Yeah. So the corporation pays the state income taxes and that's a dollar for dollar deduction. Doesn't have to go towards the $10,000 cap that individual taxpayers have. So, um, but the, here's the key is um, I think maybe some states mandate that, but others it's an election. So if you don't really think about it, you just may pay it on a personal level and not get a deduction for it. But if you have that option, you know, you definitely should, if you're, if you've already reached that $10,000 cap, you definitely should make the election to pay those state taxes at the corporate level. And then you get a dollar for dollar deduction. Got it. I mean, I guess the difference would be, and I'm just thinking out loud, if somebody were, ha if had those entities set up and they were functioning as a pass through, and they were showing everything on the one personal return per se, I guess they would have, right? As a well, that's different. If, if it's a, okay. say it's a um, sole proprietorship or a single member LLC, it doesn't work. Okay. So those do not have to file separate tax returns. Gotcha. So multi-member, which is why you said multi-member yeah, LLC. Those are, those are considered disregarded entities. 
Gotcha. But an S Corp is not a disregarded entity. It's just a flow through, pass through entity. And you, if there's a single member of an S Corp, they can elect to pay the taxes at the corporate level. So it's passed through, but they still get that benefit. Um, and for an LLC, there has to be more than one member, like I said, because that will mean it's not disregarded. It's going to be taxed as a partnership. And that same thing applies. Or sometimes people will elect to have LLCs taxed as S Corps, and then you can do it there. So the bottom line is if it's an S Corp, you only have to have one member. If it's an LLC, you have to have at least two members for that to be able to work. Got it. Interesting. There you go. Good, good little tricks. Like, you know, and, uh, you know, some people might call that as, would somebody call that a loophole? Kind of. <laughs> but it's perfectly legal. Right. So, <laughs> right. so you know, when I moved, um, I don't even know if I discovered it myself when I first became a Florida resident, but some years ago, I just, I guess it was when they changed the, the salt cap to 10,000. And then I was thinking, how am I going to be able to deduct this? And I realized I could just make that election. And then I recently saw an article about it, which I posted on LinkedIn. It's funny how we either stumble across those things in our practice and, you know, maybe they had been presented somewhere else, but we didn't catch it or we didn't see it or we didn't pick it up. We stumble across it and then it becomes, you're like, oh, now I'm seeing other people do it or talk about it as well. So, you know, it kind of shows up to us a little bit. And it's really not that uncommon, at least in Florida, for people to own businesses in other states that have state income taxes. No, it's even more common today, right? I mean, look, I'm native Floridian. And for the longest time, people thought I was a dumb Southerner. Turns out I was just early, right? Because um, now everybody wants to be here and people that were in other states with other businesses and owning real estate are all trying to move this way, not only for the tax environment, maybe, and we won't get into this, the political climate, I don't know, right? How the handling of COVID, maybe it's the weather, who knows? It's certainly not the hurricanes based on what we've gone through recently, but but there are pe- reasons that people have decided to move and relocate. And, and Florida has been a place, obviously, through domestic migration and Texas as well, that a lot of people have gone to. And I think these are some of those reasons. Exactly. Yeah. So. Well, man, that was great. Thanks for digging into some of the the more, you know, obviously, like you said, applies to 1% of the population in many of those fact patterns, but 30% of your client base also has a huge overlap with a lot of my client base. You know, I, that's, you know, uh, when the problems get more complex, you need more sophisticated answers and solutions. So uh, I appreciate you sharing. That was fun. Uh, Don't hear stuff like that all the time. (laughs) Well, one of my favorite um, sayings about problems is I love problems as long as I didn't create them that I get paid to fix them. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. I might steal that. Yeah. Well, that's actually one of my favorite uh, things about this area of practice is is what I call f- like trying to fix broken trusts that maybe um, are old and unwieldy or they're not set up to work very well for, under the current tax environment. So but using the laws of, of the last 15 years or so have gotten a lot more liberal to allow certain changes to even irrevocable trusts um, through uh, what we call decanting, like pouring assets into a new trust or modifying the trust with it, sometimes without even having to go to court. Um, so those are important techniques too. And 
one brief nugget I'll share with people that applies to a lot of people, even if, who aren't in the, you know, even necessarily close to the top 1% is, you know, when I first started practicing, the estate tax exemption was $600,000. So most of my clients were worried about us between life insurance, home equity, and retirement plans, you know, a lot of middle-class people had to worry about estate taxes. So the, we set up these plans with these credit shelter trusts designed to hold assets when the first spouse died to avoid them being taxed in the estate of the surviving spouse. So for most people that works against you now, because when that surviving spouse dies, the assets in the credit shelter trust do not get a step up in the tax basis. Mm -hmm. So when they're sold, there'll be a lot of capital gains that has to be taxed. Um, and there was no need to shelter those for estate tax purposes, given our current $12 million exemption. So there's probably in the U.S., there's, I don't know, millions, certainly hundreds of thousands of those trusts out there that, for the surviving spouse. And for most of them, there's a way to fix it so that those assets will get a step up in basics. Um, so I've seen that even with trusts that have had millions of dollars of capital gain over the years. Now, that'll be cut... Currently, that'll get at about a 25% haircut sure. <laughs> because of the market. But still, you know, it's, it's a way to potentially save hundreds of thousands of dollars for families who, you know, they may not even be worth um, $10 million, say, for example. Sure. I get it. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Greg, I really appreciate you being on today. We've kind of come up against our time right here. So, like, you know it was fun and it flew time flies by when you're having fun. Right. So <laughs> any, um, look, we're going to have all your social media information, all your contact information will be listed below the podcast, but real quick for the people that are listening, tell them how to find you. Okay. I appreciate it. All good. So um, everybody, once again, this was Matt Chancy, the tax alpha solutions podcast. Today's guest um, was Greg Herman Gideon's uh, with Galbraith Law and offices in Naples, Indianapolis, and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, wills, trusts, and estates, and fancy estate planning for the top 1%. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matt. I've enjoyed it. You got it. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 